Well, uh, good evening. It's good to be with you. Uh, we have a wonderful passage tonight, a challenging passage, but with uh, some really, really important ideas in it. So I'm going to jump right in, and then I'll, I'll give some explanation afterward. We are moving through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're in chapter 5, and this is actually the entire chapter, verses 1 to 13, beginning in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you, are, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the, ma the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is a, a challenging scripture. Um, the title of the sermon is uh, uh, Church Discipline. And uh, this, this passage is one that is referred to often when we think of that topic. So uh, we are preaching on it because it's the next sermon in the series. We're just moving through the book. But if we were, as we do from time to time, doing a series on some important topic, and we said today we're going to talk about church discipline, this would be the passage we would go to. Now, as I said before, it's challenging in a number of ways. And one of the particular challenges here is that earlier in the letter, Paul has talked about warnings about judging each other, the limits of how we can judge each other. And yet what this passage is telling us is that there is a reality in the church in some way, in some setting, and we'll unpack that later, where we are called to judge each other. And there is a, uh, uh, an end result that could happen where a person could be removed from the fellowship. Uh, we might call that process excommunication, to be outside of the communion of God's people. This passage, this chapter, is really a, a proof text for that process. Uh, Paul talks about his role of having judged someone, and then he tells them, as we move to the end of the passage, verses 12 and 13, he said, 
uh, he asks a question, is it not those inside the church you are to judge? And the implication in the context is clearly yes. There is a place, a type of judging that's necessary and good in the church. And even in this case, the most extreme case of what we would call church discipline, their judgment, Paul tells them, should result in someone being removed from the fellowship. Verse 13, he says, purge the evil person from among you. Now, we're going to have to do some work to explain this and, and think about what it means in its context, but we want to see in the beginning what the passage is about. The Apostle Paul says there is a type of judging in the church that's necessary and good that in certain circumstances could result in a person being removed from the visible fellowship of the church. Now, what are we going to do with that idea? Um, it's challenging in a number of ways. In, probably first and foremost, is none of us like the idea of being judged. None of us like the idea that someone could tell us we're wrong or that we're wrong in such a, in a fundamental way that we no longer can be part, uh, visibly part of a particular community, of a church. That, that would feel painful. Uh, it feels uncomfortable. I think it's a basic human impulse to say, I don't want ever to be judged. Now, you may remember a couple of weeks, Paul was talking about, uh, just a few weeks ago, the other side of judging, that we're not meant to live in our lives uh, under the fear of uh, uh, what other people think all the time. We recognize a righteousness that comes from God, protects us from being driven by uh, the opinions and approval of others. But Paul is talking about something else here, and in order to have a healthy spiritual life or a healthy community, we need to both be careful about wrong judging, a judgmentalism, uh, a spirit of uh, criticism that tears people down, but in order to have a healthy community or a healthy spiritual life, we also have to have people and things that can warn us before we do something disastrous. Let me just put these images before you for a moment. Uh, it was maybe a, a year or two ago I saw a man walking through the city, had a shirt on, and the shirt said, no one judges me but God. Now, to a certain extent, I, I kind of get what he's saying, right? And, and maybe, maybe he's thinking about his justification, that he belongs to God by faith and that, uh, that, that he doesn't have to worry about the approval of others and that the full measure of all his works will only be known on the, on the last day. But I'm suspicious that's not the case. I think he's probably expressing through his shirt what many of us feel, which is to say, I don't want anyone to tell me that I'm wrong. What I'd like to argue today and try to convince you of is that actually the statement, no one judges me but God, is not a statement of freedom, but a statement that could be incredibly frightening or should be incredibly frightening. I'd like to offer you another T-shirt that you might put on. Uh, we are going to offer these on the church website beginning next week. Uh, it says, I heart church discipline. At the end of the sermon today, if you're willing to buy shirt number two instead of shirt number one, then, then maybe I've been successful. But that's what we're aiming for today. This is a challenging passage with challenging ideas, but the end result is something that's actually good, something that can be celebrated. Now, uh, 
there was a mistake in the bulletin. If you look on page five under the sermon outline, I actually had, I submitted a sermon outline in advance. It's a, something of a small miracle. Uh, I was able to do that, but there was a mistake. And this sermon outline is for a different sermon, a sermon in, in, uh, in the Psalms, I think. Um, so uh, that will not help you at all. Interestingly enough, it deals with themes of temptation and uh, David's fall into sin, but that has nothing to do with this passage. So here's what we're doing today. Uh, we're going to start by looking at the text. I've got five bullet points I'm following. They're just walking us through the text, explaining it. Why is church discipline good? Then we want to ask the question, how do we think about judging in a way that's healthy? And finally, uh, what does it look like for us each to embrace this in a way that's really life-giving? So first, most of the time, we'll walk through the text, but we'll, we'll end with those two questions. So um, we're going to walk through the text and, and see what we have here. As we begin in verse 1, uh, first point of the text we'll look at is Paul says that there's a problem in the midst of the Corinthian church, and he has a very interesting way of describing the problem. He says, there's an example of sexual immorality, a kind not even tolerated by the pagans. Now, that's a pretty big statement to say, and, and I don't know if we've had a chance to give you much background on the city of Corinth, but the city of ancient Corinth was notable for uh, sexual looseness and uh, uh, sexual immorality. In fact, there's an ancient uh, author writing in Greek who, who, descri who, who described someone's loose, immoral sexual behavior by using the word Corinthian as a verb. He said they are Corinthianizing or something like that if we were to transliterate it. There's a couple of reasons for it. Cor Corinth was a wealthy city. Uh, and uh, I had the privilege of uh, being in Athens for the summer uh, uh, 2016, and we went to a conference at Corinth. Uh, Modern-day Corinth is located small town, a little bit away from ancient Corinth. The ruins are in good shape, um, and you can walk through ancient, ancient Corinth and see some of the places that are talked about in the book of Acts when Paul goes there to plant his church. Uh, but the, the location of the city of Corinth is of uh, historic importance. It's on uh, what, what uh, geography, geography students would call an isthmus, which is a very narrow section of land. It connects the southern part of Greece, where the, the biggest city was Sparta, this region they call the Peloponnese. And on the other part of Greece, or Attica, where they had Athens, these two big parts of Greece are connected by a tiny section of land that's only five miles across. Now, the first thing that was significant about it, it was a very good place for a military fort. There was a big fort next to the city of Corinth with soldiers that were stationed there. But it was also uh, important for commercial reasons, because if you wanted to get your uh, ship's cargo from one side of, uh, the, of the sea around Greece to the other side, you could go the whole way around southern Greece. Or you could come to this little section of land, pay someone to put your cargo onto a wagon, take it five miles and put it on a ship on the other side. You could save weeks and weeks of time, depending on the wind, maybe more than that. So it was a military center. It was a very important commercial sub uh, 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 city, and they had ports on both cities. They'd move the, the cargo in between them. Now, the third thing that's interesting about Corinth is they had a major temple. 
Now, we don't know which of these things came first, but the temple was dedicated to the goddess Aphrodite, and it was known as having one of the largest contingents of uh, temple prostitutes in the ancient world. Uh, some scholars say there were as many as a thousand uh, prostitutes. And in the ancient pagan s- uh, services, that you would go, when you went to worship in the temple, it often involved paying for uh, sexual activity with a prostitute. And then in the various temples, they would have male and female prostitutes, and people could do anything they wanted that paid for. So th- that all these things combined together, the wealth, the influence, the, the, the sexual immorality baked into the temple meant that the church planted in Corinth was going to have immense challenges. So, it's not surprising that the book of Corinth is a place in which Christians are struggling deeply to differentiate themselves from the culture. At one point, I heard a pastor preach a, a series on uh, 1 Corinthians. He entitled uh, Christians Gone Wild, <laughs> which was, I mean, it, honestly, Corinth is, the, the, Paul's letters are dealing with some pretty big problems. But he begins by saying, the problem in your church, Corinthians, is, is such a big deal that even the Romans are blushing. E- even the Greeks are looking in at you saying, whoa, I mean, that's a step too far. And it would, it would be as if you had, you had a church in modern-day Vegas, and the people walked out of the casino and saw a scandal in the church, and they thought, oh, my goodness, what's wrong with these immoral people? That's the scenario that Paul is laying out before them. And the particular thing going on in the congregation, he says, verse 1, a man has his father's wife. Now, uh, what seems to be happening here, and I think there's general uh, consensus among scholars about it, is that he was sexually involved with his mother-in-law. It seems like the term father's wife would indicate it's not his natural mother, um, but it's still considered incest. And Paul looks at the situation, he says, what's happening here is is rather than, than mourning this as you should, you're actually arrogant about it. Maybe they were saying, we have freedom in Christ. Maybe they're saying, we're not like those, you know, really, uh, uh, you know, self-righteous Christians up in Thessalonica. We're not, we're not like, the, you know, the really legalistic Christians in, in Jerusalem. We know what it means to have freedom. Maybe that's the kind of thing they were boasting about is, you know, look at us. We're not bound by all of these old regulations. We're, we're free. And Paul says, that's not what freedom is for, right? You're, you're not free to do whatever you want. You are free from sin to live lives that are, that are flourishing and full of goodness and beauty. He tells them that they should not be proud. Now, we don't have to think very far to recognize, especially in the month of June, that it's common in our culture for people to speak about their sexual activity in language of pride. That's not very far away from us, is it? We can imagine how easily it would be for people uh, to celebrate that which they're doing that violates God's intentions for us sexually. So the second thing we see as we look at the passage is that Paul calls them to this process of church discipline. He says, you need to take action. This is a problem. Verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verses 3 and 5, he describes what he wants to have happen. He says, And when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of, Lord, of the Lord Jesus, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, 
And going on to verse 11, he says, Do not associate with one who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of, and he goes on to list a number of flagrant sins. What he's talking about here is not a person who sins and repents, but a person who embraces this sin, who refuses to turn from it, who celebrates it, and begins to call it good. We want to make sure we're clear about that distinction because the only kind of Christians who can come to church are Christians who confess their sin and admit their need for Jesus. The topic in view here in this passage is not someone who's falling and struggling and asking for help and seeking grace and uh, seeking to grow in deeper repentance. It's a person who says, no one judges me. Maybe they even spiritualize it. Only God is my judge. I'll do what I want. I'll move forward in whatever kind of behavior I think is right. I will do what is right in my own eyes. Paul says that uh, when a person who is naming Christ, who is a Christian, who's involved in ongoing and unrepentant sin, who refuses to respond to the various warnings of church discipline, may necessarily reach the end of all church discipline processes, he says such a one should be removed. He goes on and says, don't even eat with him. Now, over the many centuries as the church has wrestled with these ideas and practices, they understand this warning not to eat with someone is, is bringing the locus of this passage to focus on the meal that Christians eat together when they're gathered in worship. We call that meal communion. And so, while uh, all of the things related to our expressions of church discipline are not exactly uh, in line with every detail in Corinth. The gist of our understanding is the same. We believe uh, that if a person persists in rebellion against God, if they refuse to respond to uh, various warnings, they could be ultimately excommunicated, considered outside of the communion, and not invited to come to the meal and the fellowship of the Lord's Supper when the church gathers to worship and celebrate their expression of unity. And I think it's important we recognize that because I don't believe that Paul here is saying that we should shun a person who's been removed. But he's saying there is a type of eating that shows our relationship and our fellowship it's not, it's not the meal we have at the, at the food truck as we sit together in Shenley Common. He says, it's the meal we eat at the Lord's table when we come together. Now, I recognize not every one of those details is spelled out in the passage. I'm describing how this has been understood and wrestled with as we've thought about it down through the years, how it's applied in our context. The principles of this passage are applied in that way. What uh, Paul goes on to tell us, though, is that there is a purpose in this that is for good. Now look with me as we move to verse 5, uh, particularly the second half. He says, uh, he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul understands that for a person to be outside of the fellowship is to be in a vulnerable place. I don't know everything he had in mind when he talked about uh, the destruction of the flesh by Satan. There's sort of two things that may combine there. The, the first is an emphasis on a, a certain suffering in the physical life that we have now. 
He may be pointing out that a person who's outside the fellowship no longer benefits from the prayers, the encouragement, and the support, no longer has the, the affirmation of the church on their faith, that they are uh, outside of many of the blessings of the visible church. It may also mean that what he has in mind here is the activity in some way of Satan becomes concentrated when a person continues in their rebellion and is removed from the blessing of being attached to the church. And maybe the destruction of the flesh is in a sense a, a good thing, a destruction of that which is sinful. Again, a little bit hard to know exactly what's going on, but we can see clearly in the intention that Paul has in mind. He says, so that his spirit may be saved. The Apostle Paul recognizes that humans can become so entrenched in their own ideas and their own way of doing things, they can be so persistent in their rebellion against God that it requires a severe warning to change their course. What Paul has in mind here is actually an act of grace. He says, I'm, I'm urging you to intervene so that this man changes his course before it's too late. If he persists in the direction that he's going in his rejection of God, the consequences, the eternal consequences could be tremendous. And so he offers this gracious intervention. It's really the first way in which we see that church discipline is meant to be a grace and a blessing. If you are a parent or if you've had responsibility of caring for young children, you've had times where you've had to set rules and enforce rules. It's sort of parental discipline, we might call it. You do it as a teacher or an aunt or an uncle or just a babysitter. Uh, but particularly as a parent, you have to enter in and, and bring an, an act of correction that can cause a change of action. Sometimes parents do it poorly, but when it's done well, it's an act of grace. I remind myself of that often when I have to enter in as a parent Think with me for an instant, if, you're, if your young child is uh, persisting and running out into the road despite the warnings, and we live on a, a road with really heavy traffic. Sometimes cars go very fast in front of our house. When our kids were little, we had to be really, really clear with them about the dangers of the road. And maybe if you saw me from, uh, you know, from across the street and I was bringing a very strong correction to one of my children for having gone out on the road, your first thought would have been, that's kind of that's mean. But if you step back a little bit more, and maybe, and maybe if you stood there long enough and you saw one of these young drivers going way too quickly up Lydia Street, you would have said, the worst thing that could happen for this child is for them not to be corrected as they moved into a dangerous place. It's not loving to allow our children to play with a ball in the middle of a busy street. The correction that comes spares them from a worse consequence. Well, that's what Paul has in mind here, isn't it? He says, in, in some sense, and again, I'll admit, I don't understand everything that's going on here, but he's saying, separate yourself in such a way that, that we, we hope and pray that he will have some things happening in his life that will cause his soul to be saved. That would be good, wouldn't it? If you and I are running headlong into disaster, anything that happens that stops us and changes our course is an act of grace. 
I had the privilege a couple of years ago to work regularly with a bunch of men who were going through a drug and alcohol rehab program. It was a teen challenge. And for about five years, I went once a week. And uh, I listened to the stories. I tried to share biblical truth. And I just learned from the other staff and counselors about the unique challenges they were facing. But nearly everyone there had a similar story. They would say something like this, my life was a disaster I was blind in my addiction, I was going to die, and something happened, and I decided to come here. And almost every story I've ever heard is that something painful happened that caused them to go to rehab and for their life to be turned around. Maybe it was a, you know, a wife or a parent saying, if you don't clean up, you've got to get out of the house. Maybe it was losing a job. Maybe it was being in a wreck. Uh, maybe it was having a, going into the hospital on an overdose. Something painful happened in, in what they call it later when they look back on it. As they say, I hit rock bottom. What, what that means is simply, I experienced a pain in my life that caused me to think differently about my circumstances. And I turned and changed in religious language. I repented I turned my direction and I went in a healthy way. Now, because it was Christian rehab, for many of these guys, th that process was not only changing their life relative to their addiction, but changing their life relative to God. And, and some of them would even say, I'm so thankful for all that happened because it brought me to meet God. God uses painful things. Now, we want to be clear here. Uh, church discipline could be, in a sense, one of those painful things. But what the Apostle Paul here is not saying that you're going to go and add all these heaping troubles on someone. He says, separate yourself from them, and Satan's going to do his thing. He's not devising some scheme and strategy. He's not like, you know, telling him to, you know, pop in the window all night and, and keep waking him up so he doesn't get a good night's sleep. I'm just imagining the kind of ridiculous things you can kind of do. It's really pretty simple. He says, warn him if he persists, separate from him, and then he's, in, he's, he's on his own, and we'll pray that when Satan works in his life, it'll cause him to repent. We turn him over to the power of the enemy. In a sense, we could look at it from the other side of the coin, we will, we will ask God to work and do what we can't do. But, but you see, friends, that's not really a good place to be, is it? That's not a good place to be. Whatever is included in that phrase, deliver them to the power of Satan for the destruction of that flesh, I would say I don't want that. So remember, the church discipline is a much bigger process. It's all of the things God does through His church to warn us, to help us, to correct us up until the point that we don't have to have that happen in our lives. Wouldn't that be great? We titled the sermon Church Discipline, but often our attention moves to the most dramatic case, and we see a dramatic case here, separate yourself from Him. Uh, but in church history, we use the, the phrase church discipline to refer to everything that God does through His church to change us and correct us. And up to the end extreme where it might say, separate yourself from Him, that He would repent and return. Every time we gather and we read confession, uh, confession of sin together, it's an expression of church discipline. 
Every time we say publicly in a worship service, turn from your sin and believe. In a sense, Paul does that generally here, and maybe it's with this extreme case in mind that he, he returns to this idea that, boy, we all need a warning. And so, as he, as he moves to verse 6, he says, there's a, uh, he says there's a general principle in play. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And just as in the Old Testament, they were doing this physical cleansing, get rid of the leaven, clean your house, it was Old Testament law. He says, listen, let's all be involved in that process. Cleanse the leaven of your life. I'm not worried about yeast like they did in the Old Testament under the law of Moses. I'm saying when Jesus is our Passover lamb, here, here's, here's what we do. We put aside we put aside the malice and evil, and we live lives of sincerity and truth. If you hear that, and you think about your life, and you take that to heart, you're benefiting from church discipline. Isn't that great? Isn't that, isn't that great? <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if we learned the easy way and not the really, really hard way? Isn't it great when we make small corrections before we run full headlong into full-blown sin that brings destruction in our lives and harm to people around us? Isn't that great? Isn't it, you know, I was talking about working with addicts. One of the things I would say often when I talk to them, I'm so, so glad that I never tried heroin. I hear some of you have. When I, when I hear people talk about the fight and the struggle that happens in the core of their heart and their brain and their desires, I'm so, so grateful that the people around me guided me enough and warned me enough and gave me decisions that I didn't have to experience learning that hard lesson. It wasn't really church discipline I'm thinking about, but I, in a sense, was disciplined before I entered into that disastrous place. Isn't church discipline great? $11.99, the t-shirts will be available as soon as Joseph uh, prints them out. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> That's what we're talking about here. There's much more we could say. Paul says uh, the leaven affects the whole lump. He says the other reason we think about church discipline is, is not only is there a negative impact, if this guy keeps coming and we're all like, oh, nothing's wrong, and he's sleeping with his mother-in-law, and the outsiders are looking in, and they're like shielding their eyes, and now we're all acting like it's okay, and then we begin thinking, maybe that's okay. Maybe it doesn't matter what I do. There's a danger in that as well for us if we don't name in sincerity and truth that which is wrong. Well, friends, uh, I've, I've run out of time. I want to close with a, a final thought here. You notice that Paul has, a, uh, in a sense, in our closing section, a double standard. I'm going to end with this. I've, I've run over, and I just got to bring it to an end. But uh, notice a double standard. And would you agree with me after I explain this? Just think about this. I think our tendency is to get the double standard exactly wrong. Paul says... I, I wrote to you about, you know, not associating with sexually immoral people. And then he writes a correction. He said, I, you might misunderstand me. You might think that I'm saying when you go into the world, don't be around any of the pagans that are sexually immoral. And Paul says, if that's what I meant, we'd have a big problem because you couldn't even live in Corinth. But notice what he's saying. 
It's a, it's a double standard. He says, I'm not particularly concerned about what the Corinthians are doing outside the church. That is under the judgment of God. Now, Christians may have a helpful role of, of warning and trying to speak truth, but do you notice what Paul says here? He says, those outside the church, God judges. He says, what I'm interested in is that you take care of bringing the grace of church discipline to people that are in the church. He says, those in the church are the ones that you judge. Just think about this with me for a moment. We've seen some painful examples recently where the church gets this exactly backwards. Been reports published recently among Protestant churches that have been uh, uh, it's been revealed that they have covered up sexual scandals and abuses of leaders in their own congregations. In some cases, churches that that preach and speak quote unquote boldly about the sin of the world have sheltered the leaders in their midst who've used their power and authority to hurt others. Paul says, shouldn't you be ashamed? Friends, there are tremendous problems with sexual immorality in the world. Our role is to invite people to the grace of Christ, and there are certainly times and places we speak truth. But the primary concern that Paul has in this passage is that those who name Jesus would walk in the accountability of the church because church discipline is a grace for our good. It's a grace that we would walk not in the the malice, what does he say here, not in the leaven of malice and evil, but in the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Our struggles with sin are, are real and they're deep and it's not easy. And we need to be a place that helps each other as we call each other to truth, we offer grace to support each other in the midst of it. But we're not supporting if we pretend that immorality is good or okay. The support that we offer is grace and truth together that we could walk in the newness of life of Jesus. So, so maybe, friends, you're hearing this sermon tonight, and, you, and it is partly about uh, sexual immorality. That's the presenting issue. And Paul expands it, doesn't he? Greedy, idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler. Maybe we hear this and we're thinking, I got a problem. We're not meant to solve it all on our own. In the grace and the power of the Spirit, we walk together. And so if you're at a place where you say, I need help, that that's what the church is for. That's why, that's why we bring a warning, that we would help each other to walk in greater purity and grace and truth. We have many resources, and I'm not going to list them all right now, but I'll simply say that if you hear in this message something that causes you to see a place in your life where you really need to change and you need help, our desire is to help you because we want to share with each other and encourage each other to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Let me close in prayer.